we we just have more catabolic load on our bodies. We have more stressors. I mean, just you know, answering your phone and looking at text and looking at social media and hearing bad news and being in traffic. It's all so that depleting. Is, it's very expensive. People yeah. think of it as, oh, it's just normal life. It's like, maybe, but it's not. It's, it, it may be usual life, but it's not what we're designed to do. So it's very expensive for our bodies to live the lifestyle that we live. Welcome to the HTW Podcast. I'm Zoe Sakudis. And I'm Erica Huss. We're the founders of Blueprint Cleanse, the iconic juice brand that sparked a multi-billion dollar category. We bootstrapped, scaled, and sold, and now we're moving on. As industry pioneers, we continue to be fascinated by this rapidly evolving world of wellness. The good, the bad, and the what the fork? We think wellness should feel inclusive, not preachy. So every week, we're having candid conversations with health experts, entrepreneurs, and all-around impressive people we think you should know. We swap tales from the trenches and dive deep into the health topics and practices we're excited about. If you like what you hear, you can thank us by giving us a five-star rating. All five stars are free. And tell a friend, because sharing is caring. Put that in your gratitude journal. Bonus! We even share our often humiliating personal experiences, all in the name of bringing you real information you can actually use. Think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Well, good morning. Um, <laughs> is it still morning? It is actually still morning. <laughs> oh, dear God. How, how, much, how much did you get? How much did I get? I got... I never get enough. How much... I mean, how much do you want? I always how, want more. How often do you get it? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, why are you sounding so sexy? I don't get it near um, enough. Oh, we're talking about sleep. We are talking about sleep. Sadly. Sadly. How many for you? I mean, if we're talking about sex, it'd be a totally different story. <laughs> <laughs> All the time, as much as I want. Um, how, what was the question? I'm sorry. Exactly. I'm exhausted. Exactly. It's unfortunate. We uh, talked to Dr. Kirk Parsley who is the sleep expert extraordinaire that we've connected with. He has a fascinating story. He's a little hunky, if I'm going to be honest. I feel like we've got these like hot doctors on our show, which is kind of nice. Hot docs. Hot docs. Um, no, yeah, he's great. So he, he actually is just... He, he's one of these overachievers who, you know, dropped out of high school and then went on to just like exceed everyone's expectation. He became like a doctor in the military, a Navy SEAL, or a yeah, SEAL. he was just a Navy SEAL at the age of like 17 or whatever it was. Do you always say Navy SEAL or just SEAL? Uh, that's a good question. We should have asked him that. I think he was just saying SEAL. He was saying SEAL, but There I was think, no Navy... But as lay people... I have no The peasants idea. among us must call him call them Navy SEALs to specify. You know what else we should have asked him? Yeah. I was meaning to ask him this because I... So two things that I have that I think could be good stepping stones to me becoming a SEAL. Mm, okay. I feel like <laughs> I I'm only... Wait. I feel like I'm only a couple <laughs> lessons away mm-hmm. for training sessions, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, so I'm a certified lifeguard, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a little out of date. It might have expired. Um, I know CPR changes often. And a, a certified scuba diver. So I feel That's like all it takes. I feel like I have the sea part down. <laughs> I have the water part down. <laughs> you know, and I taught swimming lessons. Like I feel like you know, it's like air and land air that land. maybe I'm a mm-hmm. little bit. You have to be able to do like a thousand burpees or something like that. Blocking. That might be. That might be. That might up. be. Yeah, that might be my where I fail. Well, 
Anyway, moving away from that, uh, Doc Parsley is the product that he has created, which is a sleep aid. But more than the product, he really is an expert on all things related to sleep, what's actually happening to us physiologically while we're sleeping. More importantly, what's happening while we are not getting ideal sleep, which I think are as both of our current status today. Yeah. I mean, just when you thought you knew everything about the importance of sleep. Right. I mean, he's, he's here just, to make you feel bad. He's <laughs> dropping bombs left and right. Um, yeah, he gets real technical in this one, which is a, kind of a breath of fresh air because I, f- I feel like... Well, it's a very mysterious thing, right? Yeah. People wear it as a badge of honor, like how little sleep they get because they don't fully understand the uh, ramifications of not getting proper and adequate sleep. Right. So, so anyway, have a listen. It's very good. We're going to have him back because... Because obviously there's so much more to talk about. Enjoy. Well, let's talk about napping and all of those things, but let's start from the beginning. Why and how did you become a sleep expert and how can you help everybody else? Well, so as I was just discussing earlier, I actually joined the military right out of high school. I actually dropped out of high school to join the military. And I went and became a Navy SEAL and I did that for a while. And while you know, I got really serious with a woman right towards the end of that, so I got out of I got out of the SEAL team, got married, started college. How old were you? Twenty five, and of course I had to go to junior college because I hadn't graduated high school. So uh, I went two years to junior college. I uh, thought I was going to be a physical therapist, and so I started working. I started volunteering because you need two thousand volunteer hours just just to apply to uh, PT school. My ex-wife was a physical therapist, which is why I thought I wanted to do that. So I started working at a sports medicine clinic in San Diego and pretty quickly decided I didn't want to be a PT. And then that I, you know, it was a healthcare mecca. We had every kind of healthcare specialist there that you can imagine. Um, and so I got to see what everybody did for a living. And I just kind of really hit it off with the doctors there. And they actually talked me into becoming a doctor. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was the dumbest idea ever. I'm like, dude, I didn't graduate high school. I'm not getting into medical school. And uh, one of them was like, well, the question isn't what, you know, whether or not you could get in. The question is, would you go if you got it? Very good point. So yeah. yes, I would. So I'll, I'll try to get in. So I got in, um, found out when I was applying to medical schools that the military had their own medical school. I'm not a good rule follower. So the military is not a great place for me. But... But wait, this is after you're a Navy SEAL. You're saying you're yeah, but the, you know the SEAL the SEALs aren't really military either. They're kind of like, like you know, they're, yeah. I mean they they're they're like the dirty dozen. They kind of do they kind of kind of follow the rules. Like they follow the really important rules that would get them in big trouble. But it's not a very uh, regimented organization, you know. Um, and and doctors in the military are no different because the military hires doctors to be doctors. They don't care how shiny your shoes are, what your haircut looks like. You know, you might get a hard case now and then, but for the most part, it's you know, go be a doctor, do your job, or go be a SEAL, do your job. Like we we just want you to do that. You're really good at this. And so I figured I would get back to the SEAL teams as their doctor, and that would save me from getting too much trouble. Actually, got in a lot of trouble with the SEAL teams as well as their doctor, but whatever. Could you remind us? And by remind, I mean, tell us for the first time. Uh, what is the um, acronym? What does it stand for exactly again? C. Well, it's kind of a loose acronym. <laughs> so um, you have to kind of see it visually. So if you wrote SEAL, the S-E-A is C. Okay. 
And then off of the A comes air and off of the L comes land. The air and land. Got it. And it's, it's basically just our operational proficiencies, our ability to get in and out of areas through kind of every way you can do it. Whereas most, most special forces kind of specialize in one thing, right? They're really good at land warfare. They're really good at the water. They're really good with air, you know, parachuting and all the air ops. And we just try to do everything. A little bit of everything. Yeah. So anyway, I, I went through that training and then uh, spent six years, a little over six years in, in the Navy, got out, like I got out, got married. And then the whole story I just told you about going to that, went to the military's medical school. But to answer the question I think you were going for, so what, why, when I was a SEAL, I went to something called Captain's Mass, which is like, I don't know, civil court or something. You know, it's like uh, going to court for... Parking ticket? Yeah. You know, yeah, Captain's a little more than, more than okay. that. It's, it's more like, uh, you know, like maybe if you went to court for assault and battery or something, that's okay. kind of like... Something mild, yeah, right. just like, like, like a, mild, out of somebody. a mild crime, like it was definitely <laughs> a crime, but not like, you know, murder or something like that. It's not okay. that severe. That would be court-martial uh, if you went to like something really bad. So I went, I had to go to Captain's Mass as an enlisted SEAL. And then when I was in medical school, as an officer, you can't go to Captain's Mass because you're an officer too. You have to go to the highest ranking, which is Admiral's Mass. And I went through that in medical school as well. So when I got to the SEAL teams, I was really well-versed in sports medicine. Obviously, that's where I spent my whole time working in college. I My intention was to be an orthopedic surgeon. So I'd done all of my uh, internship rotations built around that. And I figured when I go to the SEAL teams, they'll they'll need all my sports medicine help. And I got there at this really great time. Uh, they just funded the production of our, of our very first sports medicine facility. And it surprised a lot of people. We had, we had nothing. We had no rehab or physical therapy or yeah. nutritionist or strength and conditioning coaches or anything. It was just everybody just did their own thing and took care of themselves and drove over to the hospital if they needed medical care. And so we, we built our own facility and I got in. I, I was put in charge of developing that facility. Um, so developing the build out of it and then hiring the personnel there. I wasn't the sole hire, but you know, I was involved in the hiring process for everybody that we hired um, to include a strength and conditioning coach and an exercise physiologist and nutritionist and physical therapy and ATCs and you know, all of these different things to have a proper rehab facility. <clears throat> um, and then we had ortho rounds coming through, we had pain rounds coming through and, so then I was the dumbest guy around, right? Because I had all these board certified experts doing all the work uh, that I figured I was going to be doing. And so in military fashion, they said, well, you should obviously be in charge of all these people. So I then became the manager of this facility. But but SEALs are a lot like professional athletes in that the worst thing you can do to them is put them on the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, like. And so they don't, they aren't usually very honest with healthcare providers because that's the guy who can put them on the bench. Uh, however, because I had been a SEAL and I was, I'd been a SEAL recently enough to where there were still lots of SEALs at the SEAL teams that I knew and I had a good reputation, which is probably more important, they would come to my office and they'd shut the door and they'd be like, hey man, let me tell you what's really going on with me. And they had, you know, this litany of, of symptoms that was really consistent. Like every single person who came in my office, you know, by the 10th one, I could have told them their story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was so similar. But none of it reached the level of disease. You know, they were having, you know, they were seeing like their motivation was low. 
And that's, I mean, you have to temper this with, you know, foreseal their motivations low. They're, they're still getting up and working hard and doing their job. It's just they don't feel like doing it. They're, you know, their strength is going down. They're getting fatter and slower and weaker, even though they were training really smart, and, you know, eating really well and doing everything that was prescribed for them by the experts that we had hired. And, and they, they still just saw their performance going down. Their concentration was down. Their memory was down. Their mood was all over the place. They were having problems of, you know, with their families at home, with like mood, mobility, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. They were in a lot of pain. They weren't sleeping well. And, you know, they, but nothing that they told me reached the level of disease. And I'm a medical doctor. So all I, all I knew how to do was diagnose and treat disease, and they didn't have any diseases. But they weren't performing anywhere near where they wanted to. And honestly, I had no idea. I mean, I was like, uh, I don't know. You, I mean, you've been in combat for eight years. Maybe there's something there. Like maybe it's you know combat fatigue or whatever they called it back then, like, which isn't technically a disease either. So I was like, I don't really know. So I had to start looking for uh, healthcare providers who worked with performance issues, right? Um, people who had kind of gotten out of that. And, yeah, they changed. They changed their title all the time, but uh, at that time it was alternative medicine, and then that flowed into uh, integrative medicine, and then integrative and functional medicine, and then evolutionary based medicine. And I don't even know what to call this stuff anymore. Um, but you know, all, all those people. But I was in a great position being the doctor for the seals. I could call pretty much any expert in the world. I'd read their book or watch their TED talk or whatever. And I'd call them and say, Hey, I'm the doctor for the West Coast Navy SEALs. Could I come train with you? Could I consult with you? You know, like whatever. Can I run patients past you? All this. Would you share your protocols with me? And so I, I got a really fast education. I mean, it's a really super steep learning curve. And uh, a few months into it, um, I was actually reading a book by my primary mentor who, uh, who is really more of a hormone uh, specialist and you know one of the things when I did all their lab, um, they all had terrible labs. Like their their labs looked like obese sixty five year old pre diabetic men. And what was um, the average age of these? This they were you know they were they were older for seals, so they were like in their uh, I'd say like late twenties to late thirties. Right. Um, so that you know guys that had been around for a while, guys who'd been in the teams for ten years or so. Uh, those were the um, those were the guys who were having the problems. But what was so glaring in the blood work specifically? Well, their testosterone was just barely within the normal range. Right. So like the total testosterone range, depending on the reference ranges, you look at different labs, you, you know, somewhere between 250 and 1,000 is kind of like the... And I would have, you know, 28-year-old guys who looked great. I mean, they had abs and, you know, they were all ripped and fit and muscular. Uh, but their total testosterone would be like 265, wow. with 250 being the absolute cutoff for disease. Um, you know, their cortisol was either through the roof or non-existent. Um, their inflammatory markers were all super high. Their oxidative markers were all super high. Uh, thyroid function was usually off as well. Pretty much all the hormones, pretty much all the anabolic hormones were high. All the catabolic hormones were low. Or all the anabolic hormones were low. All the catabolics were were uh, really high really high estrogen levels, you know, high prolactin levels. And again, I didn't really know. Um, I'd learned a lot about adrenal fatigue. Uh, I tried to treat people with adrenal fatigue. That's one of the things I got in trouble for. The SEAL teams was doing Myers cocktails, which are IVs with uh, vitamins. 
Mm-hmm. And apparently that wasn't within my scope of practice. And I was <laughs> told I wasn't allowed to do that. My medical doctor, I think I should be able to right, give people vitamins, but whatever. And so, you know, with the combination of all these seals telling me the same story, and actually almost every single one of them reporting to me that they were, weren't sleeping very well and that they're using sleep drugs every night. They're using Ambien Oof. specifically. Which is terrifying to think about when you think about right. how people actually and, behave on Ambien. Right. And this was 2009. So most of, most of what everybody knows about sleep, nobody knew. Like I didn't know anything about sleep. I didn't have a single class on medical school. In fact, I had to look up and, and you know, sort of the medical diagnostic man was like, what, what do I do with somebody who has insomnia? Tell them about sleep hygiene, which was like three things. And then if that doesn't work, give them Ambien. And if that doesn't work, give them a benzodiazepine. And if that doesn't work, you know, give them you know, progressive drugs until you're getting to like antipsychotics. Um, and of course, I can't give these guys any of that stuff because right. that would disqualify them from their job. Right. But they could take Ambien for some reason because it, you know, it had been... Yeah, it had been touted as this completely safe drug, and no vitamin drip. Yeah, that was before that was before everything blew up on on Ambien. So anyway, I started I, I started researching uh, what happens during sleep, and you know what, like what is actually going on, and what does lack of sleep cause, and how does sleep how does sleep drugs help you sleep. And over the course of several months, I sort of, I learned enough to think it's very likely that, you know, if you look in the, you know, the simplest answer tends to be the correct answer, right? The one that has the fewest assumptions. So Occam's razor, so to speak. And the only unifying theory, the only, the only thing that I could say could actually cause every symptom that they had was poor sleep. Mm-hmm. And when I learned about sleep drugs and how they interfere with the stages of sleep and the sleep architecture, I realized that even if they were using sleep drugs, and you know, they're to be honest, they're seals, and so they're also drinking, you know, cocktails with their sleep drugs. And if you know anything about that community, if one is good, two is good, two is better, three is great. Um, so they're taking you know three times the recommended dosage, having that with a couple of cocktails, going to sleep from midnight to four. Uh, getting up, going to, you know, getting up completely wide awake at 4 a.m. and going, well, I'm just going to go work out really hard today. I'm going to go to the gym early, work out really hard, work all day, and then I'll be really tired tonight. And they've been doing that for years. You know, talk right. only, so their systems probably, are shot. I'm like, yeah, well, tonight's the night. I, <laughs> tonight it'll work. Uh, you know, just keep going. And so I, I said, well, let's see what happens if we get people off of sleep drugs. And I still wouldn't say that I was really well-versed on sleep. I was just... I had some understanding of it, but you can't just take away their sleep drugs and say, suck it up, buttercup, right? Like you have to give them something. So I did a bunch of research on to what were, what supplements actually help people sleep and why, which is more important to me. And I came up with a combination over time and it, I didn't come up with it all at once. It's kind of ingredient by ingredient. I just started adding things. Uh, that was kind of the beginning of everybody understanding the importance of vitamin D3 and and how much that impacts sleep. And so I gave everybody vitamin D3. I thought, you know, because all my guys were deficient. I had, I had their labs. That was another thing I had trouble for because I did like 100 lab markers just as a blanket test because I didn't really know what I was looking for. So I just looked for everything I could. And so I was like, vitamin D3, got it, nailed it, smartest doctor ever, I win. 
And of course, that helped a little, but it didn't solve everything. Then I learned, well, you need magnesium. Uh, you know, magnesium is involved in every uh, vitamin D3 reaction. And so I, you know, added magnesium and then I just kept adding sort of every substrate that made sense all the way up into melatonin. And in those days, I was giving way too much melatonin. I, I think I was giving three milligrams and I bumped it down to one milligram. And that's still way too much. And, uh, but they were having to go out and buy all these ingredients separately. And it was a real pain in the butt. This is pre-Amazon. So they were having to go to different health food stores and all this stuff and buy, um, you know, magnesium powder and vitamin D3 drops and these in capsules. And these were 90 days and these came in 30 days of supplies and it was costing them like $150 a month. And, but they were doing it and they were reporting back to me and they were having amazing results, right? Mm-hmm. Within a couple of days, most of their cognitive stuff went away, like their mood stuff, their motivation, their mental focus, their memory. Now they there's a lot of traumatic brain injury as well. So there's you know there's some component of that still existing, but relative to where they were, they felt a lot better. Mm-hmm. Once once I was achieving some pretty good success with that, I, I kind of got put on this lecture circuit where where the SEALs before they deployed and when they came back from deployment, they would have these um, kind of decompression stops where they would, you know, go and sit through a bunch of lectures, spend some time with their families and they'd lecture them on nutrition and exercise and stress mitigation and, you know, family communication from afar and like just, you know, setting them up for the, you know, for the adversity they're about to uh, encounter and then kind of taking them out of the combat mode and getting them back into regular civilian mode when they come back. So um, there, there were retreats, they were called three to four day retreats at big hotels and they'd bring in all these world renowned speakers, you know, psychologists and doctors and nutritionists and whatever. And, um, so I started doing those lectures all the time with guys like Rob Wolf and Dave Grossman and um, John Wellborn, like kind of all these people who are really big in health wellness space still to this day. And once I got into sort of lecturing with them and started getting on their podcasts and stuff, and I I started getting hired to do all these gigs for you know professional sports teams and corporations and different military branches and law enforcement and DOJ and all of that stuff. And then I became the sleep guy, <laughs> which I never set up to be the sleep guy. I was, I was trying to be the performance guy and I had a strong focus on hormones, but the military wouldn't let me talk about hormones. So I had to talk about sleep. And of course, all your hormones are regulated through sleep. So I got to you know, sort of slide of hand to talk about hormones while I was talking about sleep. And that's how I motivated them. I can't tell SEALs, well, you're going to be more likely to get diabetes and die earlier, more likely to get cancer. Well, you, you can't motivate a 25-year-old SEAL with that. You have to say, hey, this will make your growth hormone higher. It'll make your testosterone higher. It'll make you more anabolic. It'll make you faster. It'll make you stronger. It'll make you more resilient. Then they listen. And so that's how I became the sleep guy. And that's how I developed a sleep supplement because these guys just completely peer pressured me into making a product out of it. Um, I, I did not want to be a supplement company owner. That was not in my right. uh, vision of my career whatsoever. Uh, but they just kept harping on me. There you go. They just kept harping on me. And I was like, all right, all right, I'll make it. And, and of course, I had no, had no idea what I was doing. I, I, didn't, I didn't have the first clue how to produce a supplement. I didn't have the first clue how to build a website. or I didn't know what e-commerce was. I didn't know what a sales funnel was. Like, I was a bumbling moron. Um, and I figured, yeah, I'll build this up. In a year, I'll hire somebody to run it. And I'll go back. 
that's five years ago. So, um, and you have not gone back. I have. I, I mean, yeah. I've I've been progressively consulting again more and more, doing more clinical stuff. Uh, and I actually about six months ago hired a CEO. So really, all I do now is things like this. I do mm-hmm. I do content production, content delivery, make high level decisions. But well, I mean, I run this off. And I think that the whole point here, and something that we were talking about before we spoke, was you know you have this product which has all of the you know it's checking all the boxes in terms of the ingredients that slowly we're learning as a culture are all of kind of the key components to good sleep. But really, I think it's the information that you have and the experience that you have and what you've seen with your own eyes and the stories that you can tell that make it feel more special. Like it feels like this product is kind of an extension of what is, you know, your expertise and not so much that it's just kind of this isolated product on the shelf. Um, And, you know, I think, I mean, you've touched on a lot of points here that I want to like be able to dive into a little bit more because I think what you're doing is basically saying like, these are things that work for the kind of the hardest training, most aggressive, kind of most, uh, you know, sort of badass community out there. So there's no reason that it shouldn't work for you. So I mean, we right. want to talk about how sleep affects, you know, performance and hormones specifically, because you touched on that right. a bit. Um, and this and weight and, you know, weight fluctuation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, what's, what's like the, the, the real value for people that are just thinking that, you know, their six, seven hours is okay, but not great, but they're not really understanding the impact of how it's affecting them outside of just being tired. We like to talk right. about hormones here. We so, do like to talk yeah. about hormones. Yes, feel free. You're, you're welcome to talk about hormones here. Yeah, yeah that's, that's my sweet spot. You know, having, having done this for uh, over 10 years now, I, I still find it fascinating, but to something you just, you just brought up, the most challenging thing in my job. Now, keep in mind that I, uh, I'm a consultant and I work with high net worth people who basically traded their health for wealth for 20 or 30 years. And now they got a ton of money and they, all they want is their health back. You know, they just sold their company or their brother just had a heart attack or something. And like now, now they're taking it seriously. And we do this concentrated year and it's absurdly expensive. I couldn't, I couldn't afford myself if, you know, um, how much these guys pay to work with me. And they know who I am. They find me through things like this. Mm-hmm. And still the hardest thing I have, and, and I work with all pillars of health, right? I, I do sleep, I do nutrition, I do exercise, and we do stress mitigation through however we do that. Uh, and some mindset work, of course, is built into all of that. But the, the most difficult challenge I have is still getting them to value sleep. Right. Because we don't place value on it as a culture. I'm like, you know who I am. Why right. did you come to me? And now you're going to complain about sleep. Uh, so it's really like a, it's a really detailed application. And part of that application is, you know, you have to agree to sleep eight hours every night. And if you aren't sleeping eight hours a night, it won't work. With you. And they and they still argue with it. You know, it's still the it's still the most challenging thing. They just don't see the value in it. And that's largely because we don't have really good. Uh, introspection, the the self awareness aspect of sleep. It if you if you mildly deprive yourself of sleep, you still shut down this area kind of over your eyes and your forehead and behind your forehead, right? That's called the prefrontal cortex, and that's the executive functioning they call it. And if you just think of what does an executive do for a company, that's what that area of your brain does, right? It allows you to look forward and to say, hey, if I do this, the most likely outcome would be that. Right, so I'm I'm making a million of those decisions every day, right? It, 
down to like where I, if I put my hand this way or that way when I grab a doorknob, right? It, it, there's just a million little things that you're making decisions on. That's where your attention comes from. That's your ability to concentrate, hold multiple thoughts in your head, work with new information, make complex decisions. It's all coming from there. So if you don't sleep, you don't have that functioning. I mean, you obviously have it, but you don't have it to the same degree. You lose 20 to 30% of that just by missing a couple of hours of sleep, which if you look at the symptoms of sleep deprivation and you look at the symptoms of attention deficit disorder, they're identical. And they're identical because it's the same thing. It's the lack of functioning of the prefrontal cortex. It's an impaired functioning. So when you when you sleep deprive yourself, there's there's been research to show. Um, well, I, I mean, it's first. I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but it's it's first important to to talk about something called sleep adaptation. And sleep adaptation is basically making sure that somebody is sleeping an adequate amount for multiple weeks before you start a study with them. And basically the way they do that is they give kind of, they give people sort of an unlimited amount of time to sleep. And when they do that, the average person sleeps about 12 hours a night. And then over the course of anywhere from three to eight weeks, they'll whittle down to where they're all sleeping roughly eight hours a night. And that's when you're now sleep adapted. Now, once somebody is sleep adapted, you can give them a task. It can be something they already know, or it can be something you're training them. Doesn't matter. Um, you know, they've done it with athletes to see, you know, test them at their sport. And what they find is obviously when you're sleep deprived or when you're sleep adapted. I mean, you you perform the best you're ever going to perform, right? That's when you're at your peak. And it doesn't matter. It's cognitive. It can be playing the piano. It can be solving math problems. It can be running. It can be lifting weights. It can be anything. It doesn't matter. Test them right after they've been sleep adapted. Then you deprive them of two hours of sleep and you test them again that next day. They'll do worse. If you ask them how they did, they'd say, I did worse. I was tired. And then day two, the same thing. Day three, maybe the same thing. But by day four, everybody will say, I think I did as well as I've ever done. Uh, I felt great. I've completely adapted to sleeping six hours a night. And then you show them the data, like, nope, you got worse. You were better yesterday, actually, than you are today. Like, you've gotten worse. So they've adapted to the deprivation. But they think it's like being drunk. I always give the metaphors like, you you go out, you go to a bar, you have a drink. You're like, I better wait a while before I I drive, right? I know I need to metabolize this. And then you have another drink. By their fourth drink, I can drive. Cool. Like, I feel totally fine. I'm not drunk. Yeah, now you're drunk. (laughs) You weren't drunk when you were worried about being drunk. Now you're drunk and, you, and you've lost your own self-awareness. So there's actually a lot of literature where they compare the impairment of sleep deprivation to the impairment of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if you're awake, once you've been awake for 17 hours, you're performing on par with somebody who had a blood alcohol level of 0.05. Once you've been awake for about 20 hours, you're performing at sort of the legal limit for being intoxicated, so mm-hmm. 0.08. Once you go to 24 hours, it's like 0.1, and it gets worse and worse after that. And most people will say, unless they're doctors, which is the irony of all this, right? Uh, I learned all this after I've been through internship and pulled call every third night for a year. And I was up for 40 hours, 48 hours all the time. And I'm making decisions that are really important. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's terrifying. Ridiculous. Thinking it's about terrifying. Um, absolutely. Schedules. Absolutely terrifying. So, but a lot of people say, well, I don't stay up 24 hours. I don't stay up 36 hours. Aha. Aha. You know, like, we, we still have you. 
Because if you sleep six hours per night, two hours less than you need, after six days, you perform as though you haven't slept for 24 hours. After 12 days of sleeping six hours a night, depriving yourself two hours a night, every single night for 12 days in a row, you perform as though you haven't slept for two days. Oh, okay. So you're doing the math a little different. Okay. I didn't know that it was cumulative. Like that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. Now, now the performance the performance decline plateaus somewhere around twenty days for most things, except error rate. Error rate goes on forever. So the longer you do that, the more errors you make. And we see this in society as we as people go, oh, yeah, I walk into a room, I can't remember why. And I turn on, I walk back out. And I, oh, I remember, and I turn on, I forget again. I'm getting older. I'm just getting old. It's like, yeah, you're forty, right? You're you're not old. <laughs> You're sleep deprived. And actually, when you look at like the real decline, and we've all seen this, you know, like, you know, 25 to 35, yeah, you can tell they're 10 years older, but is there a real decline? Uh, yeah, maybe a little bit, 35 to 45, a little more, 45 to 55, 55 to 65, 65 to 70. Yeah, it's much more obvious, right? The, la- the decades get more and more important as we get older. Coincidentally, um, and I don't know if this is, you know, I'm not saying this is cause and effect, but it's correlated. The people's ability to sleep and people's aging rate accelerate like this, right? You sleep less and you mm-hmm. age faster. Mm-hmm. And aging is, you know, it could be thought of as a disease, right? Because it, it's basically increasing your risk of death. It's increasing your risk of infection. It's increasing your risk of metabolic disruption, of being fat, of being weak, like everything, being in pain. Aging increases all that, what we think of as aging. And really what being what aging is, is being slower, fatter, dumber, and colder. And it's all hormonal. And all the hormones are done while you're asleep, right? When you first go to sleep, your, your first half of your night is predominantly slow-wave sleep. And during slow-wave sleep is when you're producing like 95% of all the anabolic hormones that you will produce for an entire day is done in that first four hours of sleep. Right. So if you're t- Wait, so what did, just back up one second, you called it, um, what was the name that you just called it? I'm so tired, I don't know. <laughs> I'm kidding. What did, um, uh, what? So the, the, that stage of sleep? It goes by lots of names. Uh, okay. we, we can call it deep sleep to be You simplistic. said slow wave, I think? It's also called slow wave sleep. Oh, okay, that's it, what it, I heard, it used yeah. to It used to be stages... So there used to be stage one, two. So there, there were brain states of beta, alpha, theta, and delta. They're delta and theta. And so each one of those was a progressively lower wave. And what that is is when they put all the electrodes over your over your brain. If you think about it, like a, it's like a stadium, right? You have microphones all over the outside of a stadium. You can kind of tell when things are going in a certain direction, but you can't pinpoint one specific person. But you can tell like roars of crowds going different directions, and that's what EK, that's what uh, EEGs were studying in your brain. And what happens is that sort of wave that goes across your brain that we can measure this kind of pulsating or pulsation of energy going from one side of your brain to the other, uh, communicating back and forth in different regions of your brain. That gets slower, and then slower that we call that deeper sleep. That's mm-hmm. slow. So it's slow wave sleep. Uh, and that's the first four hours. Well, you do that all night. So what happens when you first go to sleep, you do what's called one sleep cycle, which means you go from being uh, in this pre-sleep. We've all experienced that when you're laying in bed 
and you can kind of, you can hear stuff going on in the background. Yeah. You're aware you of feel some stuff going on, but you're not really there. You're not a, you're not 100% aware and you realize you're not 100% where you would ordinarily be sensing this. It's all slightly muted. That's pre-sleep. Then you go into stage two, which is transitional sleep. And it's pretty, it's a pretty short uh, burst of intense brainwaves. And then you go into stages three and four or the deep sleeps. And you, and then that goes over time. Of course, that takes time. So if you graph it, it's like you're stage one, you go some time, you get on to stage two, you get some more time, you get on to stage three, you get some more time, you get on to stage four, you plateau there, you come back out the same way. And then you go past stage one sleep and you go into one REM, REM phase. We've all heard the rapid eye movement phase. And that cycle takes from 90 to 120 minutes. And we call that one sleep cycle. And your night is made up of multiple 90 to 120 minute segments because what happens after the REM is to go back down into deep. Over the course of the night, your very first sleep cycle is like 80% deep sleep and a tiny bit of REM. Your next one is maybe 60% deep sleep and more REM. And by the morning, by the morning hours, the last, your last two sleep cycles are predominantly REM sleep with very little deep sleep. So the deep sleep is when you're really doing your anabolic activities. It's when your immune system is functioning your highest. You're repairing any damaged tissues. You're repairing your muscles and tendons and ligaments, things you've strained. You're flushing your brain out. You've probably heard of this thing now where we have this system yeah. in our brain, right? Glymphatic system where we're, we're, pump, we're pumping um, the waste products out of our brain. Like all cells are just like, you know, human is just a bunch of cells, right? We take stuff in and we waste things. Every cell in your body does that. So you build up waste products. And so all of that gets flushed out. You start pruning um, as well, which basically um, you can actually see the changes to a neuron as you learn new information. You get like this little, this little nub of a connection that wants to go somewhere. Some of it's important and some of it isn't. So you, so you encourage the ones that are important to make new pathways, but you prune off the ones that aren't important. Um, and so all of that's happening in the beginning of the night. Now, when you go into REM, you're more dealing with your neurophysiology. You're dealing with emotional events. You're, uh, you know, you're, that's when we think of dreaming, like vivid dreaming is basically working with a bunch of concepts in an abstract way that you've been exposed to. Um, and it could be obviously something from your past or it could be something experienced today, any combination thereof. And so we really think of the, um, the restorative memory, learning, creative thought, uh, attaching complex information into information we already know. We think of that as being more of the REM sleep, more of the morning hours. And the deep sleep is more of the initial hours, which is the, the anabolic where you're thinking about you're really maintaining your physiology. That's when you're secreting growth hormone, you're secreting testosterone, thyroid function is higher. You know, your, your immune system, like I said, like all the cytokines, all of the signaling molecules, all of that stuff is very anabolic during deep sleep. It's the, actually, I always say that the, the exact opposite of deep sleep is fight or flight. So when you're in fight or flight, your body's very capable, right? You're like, you have this increased blood flow, your pupils have dilated, you're taking out this light, your lungs have expanded, you're using more of your lungs, your cardiorespiratory system's going faster, your blood pressure's increasing, you're getting more, you're, you know, your liver's secreting glycogen, you're getting more um, neuromuscular uh, activation, you have a higher 
a higher neuromuscular uh, tension rate, which means that it, it's faster and easier to fire muscles. Your pain threshold is increased. You're kind of superhuman, right? You're the fastest you'll ever be, the strongest you'll ever be, the most enduring you'll ever be. Um, and you're hyper-focused, focused on whatever the threat is. The exact opposite of that is what goes on when you're in deep sleep, right? Because what if you think, well, I'm superhuman, why wouldn't I be like that all the time? Well, because it's very metabolically expensive. It's very catabolic. You're using your body as your fuel source, right? You're breaking down your muscles. You're breaking down your stored glycogen. You're, you're basically just you know, revving it up and throwing jet fuel on the fire because you, everything has to function to get you out of that event. Now, when you're in deep sleep, you essentially have none of that going on, right? It's the lowest heart rate you'll ever have. And when you're in fight or flight, you're not fighting off infections. You're not digesting. You're not producing sex hormones. None of that stuff matters. All you need to do is survive. Now you survive, you get your deep sleep, you do all the repair. And I think that one of the things that happens in modern society is we don't necessarily live at fight or flight, but if you look at sort of the difference between deep sleep and fight or flight, maybe we lived here ancestrally and we're living here now, right? So we, we just have more catabolic load on our bodies. We have more stressors. I mean, just you know, answering your phone and looking at text and looking at social media and hearing bad news and being in traffic. It's all so that depleting. Is, it's very expensive. People yeah. think of it as, oh, it's just normal life. Like, maybe, but it's not. It's, it, it may be usual life, but it's not what we're designed to do. So it's very expensive for our bodies to live the lifestyle that we live. And of course, because our because it's objectively so hard to look at yourself and say, oh, I'm sleep deprived. If we don't eat well, we get fatter and we go, we can look in the mirror and go, oh, I'm getting fatter. We don't exercise. We don't stay act active. We can tell it's harder to bend down entire shoes and we ache more and it's harder to get upstairs and we're out of breath. And we realize that we're out of shape. We don't, we don't have that for sleep. And so the first thing that people give up is sleep. And it's the last thing you should have. It is actually the foundation of upon which everything else is built. I mean, I, like I said, I started sort of talking about sleep as a way to talk about hormones. But the more I've learned about it, I'm like, oh, no, actually sleep is the most important thing. And that nothing will break you faster than not sleeping well. And there's a reason we use that as an interrogation and torture technique. Because it breaks people down God, faster than anything true. else. And, and nothing will make you feel better and improve faster than getting good quality sleep on a regular basis. Everybody has all these 30-day challenges with nutrition and exercise and 30, 60, 90-day challenges. I'm like, one week. Give me one week. Make yeah. sleep your number one priority for one week. And then if, if you're not convinced, go on about your life, do whatever you used to do. So what, so what are some of the main culprits? Like, What are we doing to sabotage our sleep just in the way of diet or I mean, what are the... Right, aside from like factors. actually opting to not go to bed at normal hours or getting up too early, what are the things that we're not, we're doing unconsciously? Well, every, pretty much everything that we do uh, in, in modern society interferes with our sleep. So the, the, very, the very first and most important aspect and something I know you and all your listeners have heard about is the circadian rhythm. <clears throat> Basically how we evolved to be on this planet is to, is to get up when the sun comes up and to go to sleep a few hours after the sun goes down. If you look at hunter-gatherer tribes that live across the world right now who've never been exposed to electricity, they still do exactly that. And they do it every single night. And they don't need a clock to wake up and they don't need a clock to tell them when to go to bed. A couple of hours after the sun goes down, you've had enough changes in your neurochemistry to make you feel sleepy. You sleep. You, you know, a lot of metabolic changes happen. Everything gets repaired. 
you go through your sleep cycles, your body temperature is getting progressively colder over the night because it's getting colder the longer the sun's down. You kind of hit uh, some happy point where you your body is repaired enough and your body temperature is at this uh, lowest point and that triggers a cortisol response and then that starts waking your body up and then you wake up right around the time the sun comes up. And that's how we're designed to live. So everything that we do that's counter to that gets in the way of sleep. Right, so having electricity gets in the way of sleep. You know, the 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 cue for the circadian rhythm to keep you in train with the sun isn't the actual sunlight per se; it's just the blue light in there. And you have ganglion so nerves, a bunch of nerves in the back of your eye that sense blue light. They have nothing to do with vision. Blind, a lot of blind people have them, which is why blind people can have circadian rhythms that are normal. Not all of them, obviously, but uh, oh, I didn't know that. That's so interesting. And so you have. You have these blue light sensors, and once the blue light goes away, my guess is because the sky is blue. Um, it, so we evolved that to be the major cue. Once that, once that happens, the blue light goes away. We start changing all of these neurochemical pathways with sort of the initial trigger. The sort of the short term trigger is the circuitous route route through the brain into the pineal gland and sort of the back of the brain where it secretes melatonin. And people, most people know that that's associated with sleep. And that's sort of the initiator, like that melatonin is kind of like the trigger of the very beginning of all of the stuff that's going to change in your brain to make you feel sleepy. So there are things that interfere with sleep, like being in too warm of an environment. There are things that sleep, uh, interfere with sleep is like being too heavy and sleeping on the wrong type of surface. So you get pressure points and those pressure points are decreasing blood flow to that area, which then stimulates a cortisol response. And it and stimulates an inflammatory response. And so you have to move in your bed and, and eating poor diets because when you eat, when you eat a poor diet and you, and you have problems with fluctuations in blood glucose, if you think about the entire animal kingdom, so that all mammals on the planet use the sun as their cue when to be awake and when to be asleep. And there's only one animal on this entire planet that sleep deprives itself on purpose. And that's us. The only other time any other animal will sleep deprive itself is when it's starving or it's being hunted, right? And so we will do the same thing. We still have that built into us. So when we're stressed, as we call it, and we're not being hunted by lions or being hunted by the IRS or a frivolous lawsuit or an angry boss or a divorcing spouse or Captain's whatever. Captain's mast or... Captain's mast and admiral's mast and yeah, all these, all these things that get in the way of uh, being calm and cool and collective all that. And so we have higher stress hormones that interferes with sleep. Again, poor diets, glucose fluctuations. If you look at pre-diabetics and diabetics with poorly controlled blood glucose, they all sleep really poorly. You can't stay asleep very well because your brain will go, oh, I'm starving. I have this really quick decrease in blood glucose. And it doesn't matter what the total number is. It's just if it went from if it went down 60 points in you know, 10 minutes or whatever, like I'm making that number up, but it's the rate of change. If it goes down too fast, it can still be high. That will trigger a cortisol response in you, and you'll go, oh, and, and and you'll feel like waking up sooner because I told you that the cortisol response, sort of in those morning hours, that's what that's what's leading you leading you to being awake. When you're in fight or flight, you're at maximum cortisol. When you're in deep sleep, you're at minimal cortisol. And somewhere in between the deep sleep and waking, you have to increase your cortisol level. Well, what if your basal level of cortisol is just way higher? It's way harder to get deep sleep, and it's way easier to wake right. up. And that that's cumulative, right? With cortisol, yeah. So the more, the more the more you deprive yourself, the worse your cortisol 
Because. Right. And, and, and you actually lose cortisol receptor. So when you, you never just secrete cortisol by itself, you secrete cortisol with epinephrine and norepinephrine, which is essentially adrenaline. And that affects your brain. It affects your body a lot too, but it affects your brain very heavily and especially your prefrontal cortex. And so over time, you'll actually decrease your sensitivity to cortisol when you have ele- constantly elevated cortisol levels, but your brain never loses its sensitivity to the adrenaline. In fact, it becomes hypersensitive to it. So now you're creating anxiety. So when you're sleep deprived, you're much more likely to be anxious. Mm-hmm. You're much more likely to worry and have sort of a negative outlook, a gloomy outlook on the world because we're, you know, we're designed, our defense mechanism in the world is to look for the danger in every situation. Mm-hmm. So you get really good at looking at danger because your, your brain realizes that your body's suffering and you're not ideal. Why is that? We've ever, either we're being hunted or we're starving and that's why this is happening. Our brain thinks, so let's, you know, let's either, you know, prepare to flee or fight or let's, you know, go out and forage for food. Now, when you don't sleep well, it also, that's also where your neuroregulation of appetite comes from. You, like you got to put ghrelin and leptin. These things affect how hungry you are and how much, how much you need to eat before you feel satisfied. Well, all that goes to pot with just losing two hours of sleep a night as well. And actually, the research was done on just one hour. If you lose one hour of sleep a night on average over the course of the year, you, you'll carry 14 pounds of additional body fat. Basically... Everything, everything that we do in modern life stresses us out, uh, interferes with the light stimulation, inter- interferes with, uh, you know, we obviously have a ton of bad food and poor, poor food choices. There's a ton of endocrine disruptors and the plastics and the chemicals in our environment. Like it, everything that we do as a modern society is really kind of screwing us over for sleep. But also, not sleeping well screws us over for society. So, you know, like, right. they're both. I mean, like, I just I can't help but point out that the leader of our nation, our great nation, likes to brag about the fact that he only needs four hours of sleep. And everything you've just described, both in terms of the physical manifestation as well as that kind of constant sense of fight or flight, and somebody is always, you know, that paranoia and that. Consp- I mean, do you impulsivity is one of the main cues, right? <laughs> think of think of attention deficit disorder. That's what sleep deprivation is. It's amazing. Yeah. So what it about, should be a requirement. Like if you are elected to office, you have to get between eight and ten hours of sleep. Like you need to well, be neuro, the neurosurgeons house. don't sleep yeah. either. Exactly. Well, <laughs> right? People do brain surgery on you. <laughs> right. Truck drivers, well, um, doctors, neurosurgeons. Yeah. I mean, this is law enforcement, military, oh. pilots. Yeah, right. just those people. It's not important things like florists and seamstress. <laughs> yeah, it's right. not people right. who actually impact your safety. Yeah, my brother is a pilot, and they have the. You know, he would tell me how they have the. They test them just constantly for their blood alcohol level, but they never test them to say like how much sleep did you get. I mean, it's kind of insane. It's so disturbing, right? Um, in the in the you know the FAA and the American Medical. It's not actually the American Medical Association, but the people in charge of medical education, you know, they they regulate how many hours that you can work so that they give you adequate time to sleep. But if you work it out, you would essentially have to sleep like the minute you get off of work. Right. <laughs> until you come back to work. Like that's yeah. that's how and that's not gonna happen. So I mean, all of the I mean it it's it's nice that they're making an effort to control it, but no one has gone nearly far enough. Right. And, and like you mentioned, long haul truck drivers. Like, I think one hundred percent of fatal accidents yeah. are attributed to that 
Um, and like 60% of all other accidents are attributed to that for long haul drivers. You know, you're, uh, when you look at, I mean, everybody's all upset about teenagers and drunk, drunk driving, right? You're not teenagers, but like whatever, the 19 to 25 year olds when they're likely to be, you know, drinking, driving, and their mothers against drink, driving, all, like all this stuff. Nobody's saying anything about sleep. Right. A 19 to 25 year old is three times more likely to die in a car wreck from being tired than they are from being drunk. Right. I mean, they're just not, I mean, so when you are a teenager, you're supposed to be getting so much more sleep, right? Isn't that right. the, the, the most right. um, or the highest demand is during that time? Well, if you think about, you know, Aside from infancy. There, there's the obvious period when you're growing, when you're going through puberty. So you're, you're growing rapidly with your body and we can see that. It's very obvious. What we don't see is that during puberty and for some years after puberty is when your brain is developing and right. it's still developing at a very rapid rate. So if you don't get adequate sleep during brain development, you tend to interfere with these exact brain areas that we're talking about. And so that's why all of our kids are, you know, like I have a, I have a son, I have two sons in college. Like everyone they know takes or takes uh, Ativan, you know, or right, Xanax. Yeah. You know, they they're all they're all anxious, they're all stressed out. And you know, if you look at adults, like the average American uh, working age American sleeps six point two hours a night, which is two hours less than they need. Um, it's actually an hour, almost an hour and a half less than what we consider just to be sort of survival to to not be going backwards every day of your life. It's right around seven to seven and a half hours. Um, but to actually be going forward and to be improving, they're, they're missing two hours of sleep a night. The average teenager, though, is only sleeping six to seven hours per night, and they need three more hours than we do. Uh, so we are essentially killing our kids. And there's, I mean, there's an organization that's a lobbying organization that's been around for well over 10 years. I mean, it's been around the whole time that I've been in sleep. They've been lobbying DC to get school started later and yeah. they can't get it done and why can't they get it done because of money because if you if you can't send it if you can't get kids to school before their parents have to be to work right. then you have to bus every kid and now you need an extra 300 million dollars to run buses and that's what keeps us from that's why we've chosen to destroy our, our kids future over spending $300 million right. a year on bus. Well, what about a mandatory nap time for like high school students as opposed to just toddlers and preschoolers? They'd all have sex in the bathroom and smoke dope <laughs> and stuff. It wouldn't work. <laughs> well, that brings me a very good point. But um, another question, you know, to that point is, can you recoup that sleep that you lost? Like how important is it that the sleep is uninterrupted? <clears throat> right. There's that notion of like, oh, I'm going to make up for it. But it's, can you actually make yeah, up so, so if you think of it, I mean, it's very accurate to think of sleep as an injury or sleep deprivation as an injury, right? If you think of your, your function of, your function of sleep is to repair everything in your body that got depleted today. I'm going to sleep tonight so that my body starts at least as good as it was this morning, tomorrow morning, right? So really when you, in the simplest terms, sleep is getting you ready for tomorrow. If you don't sleep enough, you still have to do tomorrow. So you have to get that from somewhere else. So you're going to be pulling resources that would ordinarily allow you to maintain muscle mass or to have more cognitive functioning or uh, better kidney function. Who knows what? You're going, to, you're going to have to rob from Peter to pay Paul to get through today. So 
you could you could think of it as like a sore joint, right? So like if I just sit here and I bent my elbow like this for 12 hours a day, my elbow would be really sore, right? I'd go to sleep and the next day, hopefully it'd be repaired so that I could do that for 12 hours again. And I have inflammation in there and I have muscle fatigue and I have waste products and all the stuff that has to be fixed. Well, if I don't fix it, I'm going in tomorrow when it's like deficit. And I'm just going to get used to that amount of pain. And then I'm going to do the same thing the next day and the same day the next day. And, same. and if you look at that over the course of 20 years, of course, I'm going to be garbage compared to where I'd be if I was sleeping every night. Well, your brain's the same way. Your, your physiological function is the same way. So you're, if you're damaging a tissue and you're not rehabbing that tissue, you can't expect that tissue to really get better, right? Now, if I you know, blow out my ACL and have surgery, my knee is never going to be as good as it was, right? But if I do rehab and I do everything right, I can get it pretty good. But if, you know, if somebody studies it with any digital imaging or some detailed knowledge, they'll realize that there are some deficits in that knee. It's not as good as it used to be. There's some structural changes in it. So the same thing happened in your brain. You're damaging your brain every time you don't sleep well. The, the proteins that build up in the brain that are associated with Parkinson's disease and early onset dementia and Alzheimer's, all that stuff, those all those proteins build up more faster when you sleep deprive yourself. So you're damaging your brain every day. You're also damaging the blood vessels in your brain, which means you have less blood flow to your brain. So there's lots of things going on. But to just be really simple, just say you're hurting your brain when you're not sleeping well. And if you hurt your brain every day for 10 years and then you start sleeping well, well, you can regain a lot of that function. But guess what? You've, you've still done some damage. You're not going back to you can't, you can't get 100% back. But it, the smartest thing is still to get as much sleep as you can as quickly as you can. Right. So if I stay up all night tonight, the very best thing for me to do is to sleep all day tomorrow. Right. right? Immediately. I could still push it and say, well, I'm going to catch up Monday. Okay. That would be better than not catching up. But that's longer than I'm carrying, carrying that right. damage. Does a nap, so we were talking about napping a little bit before, does a nap help you catch up? Like if you only get three hours the night before, if you log an hour in the afternoon, does that count as getting four hours of sleep or does it manifest differently? So when, you're, when your brain function is slightly down or you just use a lot of brain function, even though you've slept well and your brain, you know, sort of everything's getting fatigued, uh, naps can help. So a 20-minute nap will... Uh, it, it's pretty good at restoring a creative, creative thoughts, which is why you know guys like uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin and lots of inventors and so forth used to do cat naps throughout the day, and they'd wake up with the solutions to these problems because you kind of get your left brain out of the way when you go to sleep, and you allow your right brain to work with stuff that your left brain's been muddling over and can't figure out. So a short nap can can do can you know sort of it makes you feel better and you, you feel like a little a little mood elevation a little more creative a little more giddy like we've woken up from his naps and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like so and wonderful i'm, I'm slightly inappropriate right now you know um <laughs> they're dangerous at work you know you're more likely to say something you shouldn't say. um and then if you go a little bit longer you can actually restore some of your ability to concentrate your mental focus memory and all that stuff and that's somewhere around the 45 minute range now when you get down into somewhere uh, close to an hour and a half, you're actually doing a full sleep cycle. And so you're going through the deep sleep and you're actually getting what I was talking about. You're getting that full deep sleep cycle. You're getting all that repair. You're getting a little bit of rent. So you're getting in a sleep cycle. Depending on how well slept you are, it might be mainly REM. It might be mainly deep. 
you know, athletes need a lot more deep sleep. So if you look at athletes, when they take naps, uh, you know, something like an Olympic athlete, if they take a one hour nap in the day, it's almost all going to be deep sleep. If you looked at probably a, you know, professional violinist or pianist or something, they would probably almost all REM, right? So uh, a nap is defined, is, is defined as anything less than 120 minutes. Mm-hmm. At 121 minutes, it just becomes sleep. So if you're, if you're sleeping anywhere from 20 minutes to 120 minutes, that's beneficial and it won't interfere with your nighttime sleep, providing that it's at least three hours before you're going to go to sleep for the night. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, I, I would say the main disruptor, I mean, aside from alcohol, um, for me, when I sleep is probably eating too close to not leaving a big enough gap between eating and sleeping. What do you, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts around that? What should you be eating? How long of a time period should be, should exist between going to sleep and having dinner? So you'll love the answer. You've heard it before. The answer is it depends. Uh, it, it depends <laughs> okay. on who you are and how you digest and how you eat, and what your gut biome's like and how fast you clear food. Uh, but basically you definitely want every, you definitely want time to clear everything out of your stomach before you go to sleep. Um, you'll obviously still have stuff in your intestines that it's still working, but you definitely want everything out of your stomach. Your stomachs are pretty active organ. Um, and it affects a lot of hormones and a lot of blood flow and all of that type of stuff. So you don't want your stomach to be churning and digesting food while you're trying to sleep. Now it's, it's, then that's just sort of the solid function. That's like, you know, the macrobiology of it. When you get down into the more microbiology of it, you want to know what your insulin sensitivity is like. And how much, you know, how many carbohydrates did you eat? Essentially, like how much blood, how much are you elevating your blood glucose? Because as I told you earlier, if you get a if you get a rapid shift in your blood glucose while you're asleep, it's going to wake you up, um, or it's going to at least lead to fitful sleep. Even if you don't realize you're awake, it's going to make that happen. So, I can't tell you how much glucose you can have or how many carbohydrates you can have because that depends on how sensitive you are to insulin. It depends right. on how much body fat you have, how much muscle you have, how well trained your muscle are, how many blood four receptors you have, what's your, like, you know, everything. And so everything, you know, digestion is a metabolically active process. You don't want to do anything metabolically active while you're trying to sleep. Right. Sounds pretty straightforward. What is your position on caffeine? I love caffeine. So caffeine I mean, is another one. The people who can't tolerate it, myself included, aside, just like the general... Yeah, yeah I was, I was going to say, it, that's another one of, it depends, right? Um, so it really depends on how well you metabolize caffeine. So the standard half-life of caffeine is considered six hours. And I mean, it's widely variable. There are people who take 18 hours to do a half-life. And a half-life is basically, if I, if I ingest 100 milligrams of caffeine, Six hours later, I should have 50 milligrams of caffeine in my bloodstream. Six hours after that, I should have 25. And six hours after that, I should have 12 and a half. If you're somebody who takes 18 hours and you take in 200 milligrams of caffeine, you're still pretty amped when it's time to go to bed. That's not something that's going to work for you. Plus, it, it has a longer cortisol effect and a longer stimulatory effect. Um, caffeine mainly works in your brain and it blocks something called adenosine receptors. So when we have when we make the, the fuel from our mitochondria, the fuel in our cells that allow our cells to do their job and therefore allow us to, to keep living and do our job, 
is that fuel source is called ATP, and it's an adenosine molecule with phosphate molecules on it. And you keep taking phosphate molecules off, and that creates a little burst of energy. And eventually, you get down to just adenosine. And adenosine builds up in your brain and tells your brain, hey, we have a bunch of waste products in here. We have a bunch. Of, we need to do a lot of you know, metabolic recovery. It's time to go to sleep. Caffeine blocks the receptors. So to your point of cortisol blocker, it blocks the receptors for the adenosine, but it doesn't get rid of the adenosine. So then once the caffeine wears off and you're not blocking in the receptors, you feel a lot more pressure to go to sleep. Which, an interesting aside, I know we're already running long, but I can't stop myself, so here it goes. The reason that men tend to have maintenance insomnia and women tend to have initiation insomnia, meaning the women can't fall asleep and the men usually fall asleep really quickly. Yep, they can't stay asleep. And then they wake up a few hours later and they can't get back to sleep. The reason for that is adenosine. Adenosine creates the sleep pressure, and the sleep pressure is hard to define, but we've all felt it. It's you know when you've when you've been up a really long time and you're really tired and you just have that drive to like I just need to put my head down and close my eyes. That's sleep pressure. As that builds up, sleep becomes infinitely more likely. Right? It builds up to a point where you can't stop it. Now, adenosine is produced by lean tissue primarily, so men carry. 30 to 40% more muscle mass than a woman with roughly the same size brain. So we get a lot more adenosine in our brain. We have a lot higher sleep pressure. But if we're stressed out, as soon as our brain clears all of the waste products and our adenosine starts becoming AMPA, ADP, and ATP again, we, we get rid of that pressure. Their cortisol levels wake them up the same as the woman's cortisol who won't allow them to go to sleep. That's so I think like the opposite. That's so weird. You can't you can fall asleep, but you can't stay asleep. I can always fall asleep. Yeah. But I, I can't, can't stay asleep. Yeah. That's so interesting. Well, it's a generalization. Don't yeah. make me look bad. I no, mean, I'm just bad. wondering. <laughs> yeah. With the, uh, but so so you would not necessarily say like for you, you're the guy who definitely gets as much sleep as you should all the time, but and well, the best I can. I mean, in I'm not theory, perfect, but yeah. But you yeah. also I mean, don't have problem like consuming caffeine in the morning. Like it still serves a, a function, even though you're you're not sleep deprived. Yes, but only because of habit. So, uh, what's been proven with caffeine is that if if you're tired and you use caffeine, it will improve your mental focus because it decreases the sleep pressure, right? And it's making you feel more awake, um, which elevates your mood. And you concentrate better. You're thinking more clearly. That's the that's the primary benefit of it. Also has like a slight pain reduction effect. Um, kind of helps with endurance activities. So it has benefits if you if you just didn't get enough sleep, it helps. What happens though, and I forget how long this adaptation takes. I don't, I don't even want to guess, but it, it's in the it's somewhere in the weeks to months range. What will happen over time is that having a morning caffeine, if you if you're using the same amount of caffeine every morning. What will happen is over the course of this, so over some time period, everything will adapt to where you're just feeling as good as you would feel if you had never drank coffee in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. right. <laughs> so create a new, yeah. like basically. Yeah, it's, it's just, right. it's just, it, it's a, uh, so when you first take it, it's slightly elevating. And then over time, it just kind of comes back down to the baseline. So now I have to, so now if I, it, let's say if I slept six hours instead of eight, I wake up and I'm tired. I drink caffeine, it makes me feel better. Three months later, I sleep six hours. I've been doing this every night, right? I'm still sleeping six hours. I'm waking up, I'm having caffeine. It's just getting me to the same baseline that I would have been at if I would have never drank caffeine in the first place. Right. 
So it only works for a little bit, but it becomes a poison habit. So now I drink it every morning. So now if I don't drink it, I'm more tired. <laughs> like, right. I'm, but if I go two or three weeks without drinking it, and all of that. Right. Resets. You can kind of reset. Yeah. Interesting. And some people so. get really bad caffeine headaches by trying to stop it. And then that's another reason people stick with it. Right. Well, um, but you could reduce it or play around with it, modulate it. Yeah. And you can titrate off of it. Yeah. It's the way to do it. Oh, there's so much more, but we got to wrap it up. This is. We could do another one. Yeah. I feel like we need to do another one. Okay. We will definitely revisit. Thank you so much. Yeah. This thank has really you. been great. This is very informative. All right. I'm glad. And uh, we're going to send people to docparsley.com to check out the product, right? Yeah. And there's some blogs on there. I think you can get my book. I think we're offering my book for free right now. There's definitely an ebook that's free. Um, The ebook is kind of the kind of captures what we just talked about. It's kind of like the general rules of that. It's short. It's like 10, 20 pages or something like that. And then there's a Kindle book, which if we aren't giving away right now, we will be giving it away in a few weeks. Great. Um, okay. We'll do like a proper intro. Yes. Okay. After this recording, we record it separately. So do not fear. Um, thank you so much again. This I wasn't was really scared. great. Okay. <laughs> All, right. Thank you. All right. Good talking to you. Bye. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.